Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This is the most upbeat, happy, sunny, blessing-filled opening to any letter in history that I'm aware of. I haven't read every letter in history, but I'm not aware of any that would be as full of riches and delight and joy as this. Not in the Bible, not in pagan literature, not anywhere. Right? It's, a, it's first two sentences. We've only read two sentences in Paul's Greek. The first one is just, hello, hello. And then the second one is a 12-verse monster that gives us at least five reasons to rejoice, no matter what's going on in our lives, because of the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. And I would be surprised if there was any letter ever written that gave as much cause for happiness as that in its opening two sentences. And that's even more remarkable when you read to the end of the letter and find that Paul is saying everything he's saying as an ambassador in chains, he says. I'm an ambassador in chains. He is speaking from within a, a jail in what's now Turkey. And jails today are not particularly nice environments, but back then they were a good sight worse. And he is speaking from within a Turkish jail, hungry, alone, probably beaten, certainly in physical pain, probably cold. And he's speaking there and he is declaring the blessings that are his and that are yours in Christ, regardless of the fact that he's doing it from a, a kind of environment that is as unpleasant as anything we can imagine. And that really matters, actually, because it means that blessing is not dependent on your material circumstances in the moment. Right? We can often think it is. You see people do it on Twitter or Instagram, don't you? They've got a lovely picture of them with their loved ones in front of a sunset and they hashtag blessed. And we think, well, that's what blessing is. And then if you don't have those circumstances, you're not blessed. And Paul says, no, it's not like that. It's far better than you can imagine. I could be in a Turkish jail 
I could be in physical discomfort and pain. I could be alone and yet I can celebrate what is objectively true of me because of the blessings that are mine in Christ. And so can you, Ephesians. That's how he begins his letter. And it's worth reflecting sometimes. What are you living for? And would it satisfy you if you were in a Turkish jail and everything else had been taken away? For Paul would say, yes, yes, yes it would. Blessed, blessed are you if you are in Christ. And so what we're going to do is going to walk through the five reasons to rejoice that Paul gives us and see if we can understand what they all are and and why they apply to us no matter what our circumstances are. And as Paul introduces them, he says something that's incredibly important for understanding all five. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the key phrase that we must get that's at the heart of everything that follows in this letter, not not just in this passage, is the phrase in Christ. The blessings that are yours are yours because you are in Christ and he's blessed. And as a result, these things are true of you. They're not true because of what you've done. They're not true because of what you've merited. They're not true because of what you are entitled to. They are true because of what you've been freely given because you're in someone who is dearly and richly loved by God the Father. You are in Christ and therefore what's true of him is true of you even if you're in a Turkish jail. Even if you're on your own in a flat and have hardly been able to go outside for six months because of COVID. These blessings are yours even in that circumstance because it's not about you. It's about what's true of him and you being in Christ. And this verse kicks off the sort of huge sentence that's going to run from verse 3 through until verse 14 and give us all of these blessings. But they are true because you're in Christ. A few years ago, Rachel and I were in Nigeria and we were flying home and we arrived at the airport and, and we hadn't travelled much in Africa at the time. I still haven't done that much travel in Africa. But, you know, we, when you hear the Tannoy say, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson, you need to go and wait over there. You think, what, what have we done? What's happened? You know, you become, you're just not quite sure what's going to happen next. And we're told to wait and we see everybody boarding the plane and we're still waiting. And you begin to get quite worried at that point. And then somebody appears and says, Oh, thank you so much for waiting, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson. Um, You've actually been upgraded because your friend Rebecca, who is a pilot for British Airways, has asked that we upgrade you to business class. So if you'll come with me. And for the next seven hours, we get ushered into a sort of, I mean, business class is good at the, it's nice at the worst of times, right? But when it's free and unexpected and you've been just been in Nigeria for a week and you're looking forward to getting home, it is the best thing on earth. And you're sitting there with a the champagne and the steak and all of the people fussing around you and saying, oh, you know, Rebecca, the pilot. Yeah, this is just the best thing. Thank you, Lord. And then you realize, of course, I haven't paid for this. I haven't even, I didn't even know it was going to happen. But I am being given these blessings because I've got a friend in high places. Her name is Rebecca and she flies planes. And that means I'm being given all of these things because my identity is somehow, because of what she's asked to happen, has been bound up with hers. And privileges that they would normally reserve for her have now been given to me and and us. And we're sitting there being treated as if we're in Rebecca. Like what's true of her has somehow weirdly become true of us, even though we don't deserve any of it. And so we're sitting up there in business class and we're it's all you can do to stop yourself singing. I got what I don't deserve. I got what I don't deserve. Oh, hey, oh, hey, You're just celebrating and then trying to avoid being too smug as you read the times and drink your champagne or whatever it is. 
reclining seats. And at that point you realize, I, this is the way grace works. I get brought into somebody, I, and I have a friend in high places. And I get incorporated into his identity, and therefore what, become, what was true of him becomes true of me. And suddenly these blessings that are not mine by merit, and I haven't, I'm not entitled to them either. I didn't even know they were going to happen. But these blessings are true of mine because I'm in Christ. And he flies at 30,000 feet. And he's been upgraded a business class over the entire world. And because he has and I'm in him, I get those privileges too. And so do you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's the five that I want to draw out. There are others in here too, actually. But here's the five to, to draw out for today. Those five blessings. Number one, you have been chosen in Christ. He chose us in him. Notice again, it's because you're in someone else who has been chosen. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you're in Christ, you have been chosen in him since before the world was made. Your being in Christ is not the result of an accident of birth. It's not because you happen to be born in Britain or Nigeria or Jamaica or India or wherever it was you heard the gospel. That's not why you're in Christ. You're not in Christ because your parents were Christians, if they were. That's not why. Ultimately, I mean, it might be a means God used. Praise God for them. That's what happened to me. But that's not the reason. That's not the basis. It's not because of your great decisions. It's not because you're a, a morally sensible person who can weighs up all of the options and says, Do you know what, this one seems the most reasonable or the most moral or the most spiritual the basis for you being in christ rests on the choice that god made before the world was even founded to incorporate you into christ and because he is holy and blameless you get included in him you become holy and blameless as well in him you have been chosen and some people find that troubling some people are concerned they say hang on if i've been chosen and it's not because of my good decision making isn't that just arbitrary and unfair? Doesn't that destroy human responsibility? And it's a huge question, but it's one I tend to give a, a hopefully a pretty simple answer. I think that the Bible gives us a mystery here, which I'm a human being and I can't fully fathom. But what the Bible seems to teach is that you approach a doorway above which is written, open to all comers who trust in Jesus. And as soon as you walk through the doorway, you turn around and behind you, written above the door, it says, chosen from before the beginning of time i can't plumb that mystery i don't understand how both of those things are fully true but paul sees it not as a puzzle or as a problem paul sees it as a source of comfort that god has chosen you regardless of what you did before you had done anything at all and the basis for his choice is that you're in christ and not that you're on your own that blessing your chosenness in christ then serves as the foundation for all the other blessings. Because it is his election of you in Jesus that grounds the blessings you have, not anything you've achieved. Because it happened before you were even born, before the world was even founded. Second blessing, you are adopted in Christ. Verse five and six, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Again, notice, it's in the beloved, in Jesus, that you have the blessing of adoption. If you're in Christ, your 
you've been adopted into Jesus as a son or a daughter, and that has always been your destiny. Notice the word, you've been predestined for adoption. Your destiny is to be a child of God. That's what's true of you if you're in Christ. Your purpose in life is to praise the glory of the grace of God. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. This is the most intimate and personal of all the reasons to rejoice. The idea that you and I become children, sons and daughters of God. We are not just brought into God's good books when we trust in Christ. We are brought into God's family when we trust in Christ. Theologian J.I. Packer says this is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Now Packer, if you know him, he's not a flake, right? He didn't sort of say, oh yeah, let's all be nice and fluffy. He's, he's a hardcore theologian, if you like. He goes through, these are the things that are true in the gospel. And he says, but adoption's the highest one. Because at this point, I'm not just having my sins scrubbed. I'm being welcomed in with the hug of a father who has loved me from before the beginning of time and will love me until long after this world is gone. I'm going to be in him, loved by him, secure forever. That's my destiny. I have been predestined, and so have you, for adoption to the praise of the glory of his grace. Compare for a moment the glory of adoption with the glory of having your sins forgiven or being justified by faith. Both huge blessings. But when you're justified by faith, the setting is a law court. We are defendants who don't have a case. God is a perfect judge. And the result is that we get declared righteous and forgiven from our sins. Praise God. But now, think about it. Adoption, in contrast. In adoption, the setting is not a local. It's a family. We are children without a home. God is a gracious father. And the result is that we are not just declared righteous. We're declared loved everlastingly. And we're given a home. Praise God. You have been chosen in Christ. You've been adopted in Christ. Thirdly, you have been redeemed in Christ. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. If you are in Christ, you have been redeemed your sins have been forgiven and the riches of his grace which we'll talk about more in a few weeks have been lavished upon you redemption is is such a beautifully rich word i like words in scripture that are hard to define sometimes because you have to dig into them and give lots of different images to try and explain what they mean but in english we use the language of being redeemed or redeeming or redemption in a whole bunch of different ways and all of them are true in a in a significant way of what has happened to us in christ So, for instance, we might talk about a goalkeeper redeeming himself from an earlier mistake he made. And uh, Liverpool fan, this happens sometimes. And you see the goalkeeper makes a terrible blunder. But then later in the game, he makes a blinding save and he redeems himself for the first mistake. In other words, he does something that compensates for an earlier error. That's what Jesus does for me. It's what he does for you. You've made an error. A whole series of them. I have. They're massive blunders written in scarlet. And Jesus compensates for them and scrubs them white he redeems me from my sins that's that one way we use the word we also use the word sometimes you redeem vouchers don't you you go to 
I don't know, you go to a pretzel, you go to a restaurant and you've got Tesco club card points or something, and you redeem the vouchers to get a meal. You give this in exchange for that. Well, that's what Jesus does. Jesus gives himself in exchange for me. He offers himself as redemption. His blood is a redeeming power that is given in exchange for me. So I get to go free. We talk about redeeming mortgages. When the final payment comes and you are now totally free of the debt. Well, that's what happens to you in Christ. A final payment has been issued. You're totally free of the debt. That's what Jesus declares as he's dying. It's, it's done. It's paid. It's finished. We talk about the Shawshank Redemption. You may have seen that outstanding movie. Uh, from the mid-90s with Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. But in that, redemption is basically a freedom that comes that rights all the previous wrongs. That's what it means to speak of redemption in that movie. Turns tragedy to triumph. That's what Jesus does for you. He does something that turns the right way up all of the evils and wrongs and sorrows that have come before. We talk about redeeming, in the ancient world, you talk about redeeming slaves. They talk about issuing a payment that would set a slave free. They might redeem themselves, they might be redeemed by a relative, but you could pay money and in doing so set someone free forever because of your payment. And that's what Jesus does. He issues a payment that effectively buys me out of the power of sin and buys me to belong to him instead. First question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I often quote, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I'm not my own but I belong body and soul to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ, in life and in death. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And so as you read all these images, you think redemption's an exodus word. It has so many meanings to it. And Paul says that if you are in Christ, you have those benefits that Jesus has given himself in exchange for you to liberate you, to free you out of the slavery and captivity you were in into his glorious freedom and light. And that's happened through his blood. And Paul then almost throws in as an additional thought, oh, and he's also made known to you the mystery of his will for all time, which is that he's going to unite heaven and earth and everything in them. He's let you in on the secret. Shh, hey, don't tell, don't tell anyone. Actually, you can tell everyone if you like. I'm going to let you know my plan. I'm going to unite the entire cosmos in Christ and everything that's currently separated, whether it be male and female, slave or free, Jew and Gentile, whatever it is, I'm going to bring them all together, even heaven and earth, in my son. Hey, do you think you can handle a secret? You have been redeemed in Christ. Fourthly, you have been made an heir in Christ. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works everything according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. If you are in Christ, one of the spiritual blessings you have, flying at 30,000 feet, is that you have been made an heir of God the Father as a result of the eternal destiny that he's given you. You notice, sometimes people find the word predestination a sort of big scary theological word. But Paul's used it twice in this long sentence. And both times it's been the destiny of being a child of God. You notice that? Predestined for adoption, predestined to be an heir of your father. In other words, Paul sees predestination as a way of comforting a believer. Your destiny is that you're a child of God. And the beautiful thing about being an heir is that the richer your dad is, the bigger your inheritance is. So when your father is the God who owns literally everything. 
your inheritance is unimaginably giant and blessed and fruitful and everlasting. You have been made an heir in Christ. And fifthly, you have been sealed in Christ. Verse 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Now we could talk a lot about what sealing meant in the ancient world and today, but let me just mention two things that sealing represented and use one image to do it. Sealing represented a combination of preservation, protection, safety, and ownership. And a good way I can think of illustrating this is to take the image of of a cork. If you get a very nice bottle of wine and it comes from a particular chateau somewhere in France and you get the cork out and it makes that beautiful sound when it comes out and you you take the cork and it's often got the name of the chateau just printed along the side in these lovely evocative letters and people often keep them, don't they? Or make mats out of them or, you know, these become quite a sort of prized item. But it's because the cork functions as a seal that does two things. It protects the wine and stops it from going off. So sometimes these wines might be, I've never drunk one like this, but they might be 20, 30, 40, 50 years old. And they might still be very, very good if it's a good chateau because they, the wine has been preserved by the seal, the cork. But they also have on them a name and sometimes even a picture of the chateau they come from. And as a result, they don't just seal the wine, they also are a mark of ownership. So you know you've not been hoodwinked. So you take the cork out and it's got Chateau Lafitte. Again, I'm dreaming here, but Chateau Lafitte written on the side. And you think, that's, that's, where I, that, that's, that's where this comes from. This is owned by and produced by and sealed by those people. And as a result, they've put this cork in to mark it off as their wine and to stop it from going off. It's a mark of preservation and a mark of ownership. And if you are in Christ, you've received the Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed in him, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of your inheritance. And Paul is saying the Holy Spirit functions in only this way, but he functions like a cork in your life. He functions as a mark of ownership and a mark to stop you from going off. Because a lot of Christians worry about that. They think, well, I'm full of joy with God now, but how do I know I'm going to make it? How do I know I'm going to persevere? God says, you've been sealed with the Spirit. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and he's the guarantee. Not the sort of, oh, I kind of hope you might make it. No, he's the guarantee of your inheritance until you get possession of it. And that word Paul uses even guarantee is like a, the word you'd use if you're buying a house and you put a deposit down. And you know that by having put the deposit down, the transaction's certain to go through because otherwise the person loses tens of thousands of pounds. The Holy Spirit, Paul saying, he's like that. He has been given to you by God as a mark that you are his and that you are safe. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. In other words, there are a lot of reasons to rejoice. And we've skimmed over some and there'll be many more in this series. You've been chosen. You've been adopted. You've been redeemed. You've been made an heir and you've been sealed and all because you are in Christ. But I find such comfort in the fact that Paul wrote all of this from prison. That the happiest introduction to any letter in history that I know of is written from conditions of pain, squalor and hunger that I can't really imagine. And I suspect, of course, I know that Paul wrote it to encourage the Ephesians. But I also can't help wondering if he also wrote it because he wanted to preach the gospel to himself from prison to remind himself 
of the glorious truths that are ours in Christ. I wondered if he, as he was writing it, he's partly saying, yes, yes, yes. I want to, as I'm writing this to you, I'm becoming more aware of it myself. And I want to remind myself, sitting as I am in a jail, that I am sitting in heavenly places in Christ. And these things are true of me, come what may, even if the surrounding circumstances are terrible. It's now been six months since COVID began. And I don't know about you, but it's taking a toll on me and pretty much everyone I know. I mean, there have been ups and downs. In some ways, things are a lot better than they were. In some ways, the ongoing toll is just draining, isn't it? And you must be feeling some measure of that, I expect. And in the absence of the gathered church, you know, we're watching this as we are online, the absence of the gathered church, I'm finding it more important than it ever has been in my life to do what Paul does here, to remember where I really sit by speaking the truth to and hearing it from other people. I'm just finding, at a personal level, I found that really important. So, for instance, on a Sunday morning with my, my sons, um, we, for many months, we were doing online kids' content. Uh, my, my sons are getting the content from the church in Eastbourne, and they were watching it, and it was going fine. But I, after a while, the children ran out of steam for it. And to be honest, so did I. And what we started doing more recently is that we, we sit down and like my son, my youngest chooses a worship song from New Day, often featuring the King's Band, which is great. And so they know some of the people. And at the end, my son Zeke, the older one, chooses some Christian hip hop, which we watch at the end. So it's sandwiched by two video songs that they want to see and maybe join in or I sing. And then in between, we're just sit, simply sitting with the Jesus Storybook Bible or the Action Bible. We're reading, they're enacting the story, getting them to read the different parts, acting it out. And then I'm preaching the gospel to them. And I'm hearing them pray it back to me as they're praying to God. But I'm hearing it repeated back to me as I do. And you know the spiritual good it has done my soul to have time preaching the gospel to other people. And I'm a preacher. I do this a lot. But I've still found it's vitally important for my soul to declare the goodness of God to my sons and my daughter and my wife. And I found that's true in the church. I find it's even true as I'm speaking to you now. I find it's true in all manner of circumstances. And if you don't have the privilege I do of doing this job, which most of us don't, it's very important that we do what Paul did in jail. When, t- when life is a bummer, when things are really hard, sometimes you just got to preach the gospel to someone. You've got to say, let me tell even if they've heard it a thousand times. You get in a group with them. You pick up the phone to them. You sit down with your kids and you say, can I just tell you about the goodness of God? Can I tell you about how rich the blessings God has for you in Christ are? I want to list some of them. I want to tell you, you're chosen. This is your destiny to be a child of God. You've been redeemed. You've been made an heir. You've been sealed by the Spirit. Do you know it? And as you do those things, you find them becoming truer and truer in your own soul. Can I encourage you as a, as a friend to many, as a pastor to you, use the opportunity in this, in this era, you take the opportunities you have to pick up the phone or join a group or speak to kids or whoever it might be to just tell other people the goodness of God. Because it will not only do them good, and they'll probably do it back to you and that'll do you good, it will also do you good to hear yourself declaring the praises of God. If you don't know what to say, just read Ephesians 1 to somebody and you will find the Spirit takes hold of the Word, writes it into your hearts and fills you with joy at all of the blessings that are yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the blessings that are ours in Christ. And I pray that you would write them on our hearts as we worship now. You would fill us with delight at the goodness of God. Oh, you are good all the time, 
all the time you are good. Lord, may we know that truth. May it rise within us. May we experience its delight yet again. And may we share it with others. In Jesus' name. Amen.